Welcome to the Clarinet Podcast, the show about all that's new and neat with clarinet, with the neatest people in the industry. You can support the ongoing production of this independently produced program by donating to our Patreon at clarinet.com support. Supporters get early access to extended ad-free podcasts and exclusive access to patron-only episodes and live events. And now for today's episode of the podcast with Garrett Hack, playing related injuries and prevention for woodwind musicians know how to play your instrument and and don't just you know slough that off it's like oh i know how to play my instrument well maybe you don't maybe there is one thing that you you could do better and i bet you i bet you if you really looked at uh, how you play your instrument or instruments if you're a doubler you you could find uh things you could improve either little little places here and there or, or maybe even big places Today on the podcast, I'm excited to be joined again by Garrett Hack, who returns to discuss a paper he wrote for partial fulfillment of his Master of Music in Multiple Woodwinds at New Jersey City University. It's called A Comprehensive Study on Playing-Related Musculoskeletal Disorders of the Upper Limbs in Woodwind Musicians. We talk about some of the risks for musicians, why doublers actually get fewer injuries than non-doublers, what kinds of injuries can occur if you're not careful, why the right hand actually is more likely to get injuries than the left, and also strangely why women are less likely to be injured than men. And of course, we discuss some prevention techniques that you can not only do to your playing and practice hygiene habits, but also your instruments, some things that make it easier to play with less effort and reduce muscle strain. This episode is really interesting to me because when I was in university, I noticed that, you know, I was typing a lot, I was playing a lot, and my playing technique actually was, you know, I'm in university, so it was improving and getting better, but I was finding myself getting repetitive stress injury simply from practicing for multiple hours a day and then returning home to type up papers and other sort of tasks on the computer. So I realized that my typing technique actually was awful. The way I was using the QWERTY keyboard was just absolutely brutal. And I realized at the time that it's easier to learn a new task than it is to unlearn a previously learned task and try and relearn it. And I surely wasn't at a point where I was going to give up clarinet. So what I actually did is I switched my keyboard layout to a layout called the Dvorak layout, which was a keyboard layout invented actually at the University of Washington, I believe in 1939. But what it does is it actually organizes the fingers in a way that they match up with the most used letters by strength on the keyboard. So you have all your vowels on your left hand, for example, and all your consonants on the right hand. And if you think about it, this makes so much sense because, for example, on QWERTY, the semicolon is actually under one of the pinkies. Now, how often do you use the semicolon? It's, it's kind of a wasted finger. Your finger always has to move. So anyways, this is something that I did when I was in university. A really interesting result was that my RSI or repetitive stress injury or strain injury at the time actually went away and didn't return for a long time. So what happened after that? Well, I was free of any problem for many years. But then in 2016, I fell down the stairs with a glass in my hand and actually severed some tendons in my fingers, which was not a fun injury to recover from. So, And now, after several years of trying to sort of struggle with this, I'm at a point where I've actually pursued some orthopedic massage to try and improve this. So my conversation with Garrett actually comes at an absolutely perfect time. Uh, it's just something that I'm completely interested in and trying to recover from an injury. So take your time on the stairs, be careful in all that you do, and that can extend to even the tiniest elements of your playing, which, which even you may not consider. So really great conversation here. And uh, I definitely hope that you enjoy it. 
Just three more really quick things before we get started. The first is you're going to hear us discussing PRMDs a lot. That is playing-related musculoskeletal disorders. And we kept saying that because, honestly, it's just too difficult to say that again and again. I mean, try and say that once, let alone two or three or 20 times. So that's the first thing. Second I absolutely do not want anybody to misconstrue this episode as medical advice. We're having a discussion. Neither of us are doctors. If you're having symptoms, please, please go see your doctor. This is not a substitute for any sort of medical treatment, advice, or anything like that. Lastly, Patreon backers will get access to the entire 106-page-long paper that Garrett wrote. He's generously offered that for people who support the podcast. So head to www.clarineat.com support. You'll be able to download that on the Patreon-only show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for considering supporting the show for as little as $1 per month. Today's episode of the show is brought to you in part by Jadario Woodwinds and their new weekly trivia show called Don't Blow It. You can check it out every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time on their Instagram channel. And if you know the right answers to the questions, you might even have the chance to win some amazing new gear. By the way, if you haven't checked out D'Addario's new reserve clarinet reads, you're in for a real treat. They're using some amazing new technology and manufacturing techniques that are helping achieve super consistent results. These reads are now available for E-flat, B-flat, and bass clarinet, and you can pick up a box at your local music store. Or, if you want to order online, you can head right now to clarinet.com reads. So you talk about some really interesting things in here. And the first one is, in the introduction, you discuss how the woodwind musician, or really any musician, should be seen as an athlete. And not just any athlete, but an athlete of the small muscles. Could you go into that philosophy a little bit and and why it's an important sort of realization? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, often people say, you know, oh, we're just playing instruments. But uh, biologically speaking, it's it'd probably be more accurate to say that we're working our instruments because there's resistance, whether it be in your embouchure or your fingers or your neck or your wrists or, or, or elsewhere. And if your muscles or your body is not properly conditioned or supported, problems such as PRMDs can, can arise. And um, the, the reason I, I like to draw on the comparison between athletes is because athletes have entire teams of professionals analyzing their, their, their techniques and, and, and their sport and whatever it is they're doing and are quite often with uh, the athlete hand in hand for, from start to finish so that they, these athletes can withstand the demands of their sport or their craft or, or whatever it is that they're, they're training for. Um, Jennifer Gamboa, who is the former president of the Performing Arts Special Interest Group and the American Physical Therapy Association, referred to what you just mentioned, uh, musicians as upper extremity athletes. And she believes and is quoted as saying, playing musical instruments tax small muscles in much the same way competitive sports tax larger ones. So, uh, if, if, if athletes take this kind of care, you know, at the college level or the professional level, I, th- I think musicians should be too. So there's definitely uh, an awareness gap and then also an educational gap uh, between uh, musicians and, and, and athletes. I mean, a, a perfect example of, of demonstrating how demanding what we can do is uh, in, in the cello part in from the aria of Why Do the Nations from Handel's Messiah, uh, the cellist's right arm moves back and forth 740 times during that 96-bar movement. I mean, try brushing your teeth with 740 strokes or, or doing anything 740 times. I mean, and, and that, 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 I mean, that's a fact from Janet Horvath's book, Playing Less Hurt, which, which everybody should read. It's funny, I was talking about this the other day with, with somebody um, else. I think it was the Woodwire duo, actually. And uh, we were talking about how playing looped music or minimalist music 
although a lot of musicians would consider it to be, I don't know, less serious in some way than, than other types of music, there's many ways in which it's more demanding. Um, you know, if you have to do a pattern 287 times perfectly every time and also exactly the same every time, that's actually a, a totally different kind of challenge. So what are some of the risks encountered by wind players in this type of repetitive work? So I looked at, uh, as far as what I could find, the, the top five most common uh, injuries of woodwind musicians. And, and just, just to be clear, I, I, didn't, I didn't go into hearing loss. I didn't go into uh, eye, eye, eyesight loss. I didn't go into you know, skin reactions to, to brass or, or to, to any kind of allergic reaction like that. I focused on PRMDs just because I wanted, I didn't want the scope of my paper to explode. I mean, as it is, my, my, my paper was over a hundred pages. And if I, if I included more and more topics, it probably could have easily approached the 1000 page mark. But I, I focused on what I could find the five most common, which were carpal tunnel, cubital tunnel, focal dystonia, tendonitis, and uh, de Quervain's tendonitis. Uh, and I guess just for full disclosure, uh, focal dystonia is technically not a playing-related musculoskeletal disorder. Uh, it's generally considered more of a mental disorder, but its symptoms affect you in very similar ways uh, as the other PRMDs do. So, the Focal dystonia, that, that's one that's not as common as... Uh or not as heard about anyways, is something like carpal tunnel. So maybe we should quickly explain what that one is. What, what, kind, of, um, what kind of neurological symptoms are exhibited with that? So focal dystonia is characterized by a loss of voluntary motor control and, and a very easy way just to describe it. It's, you experience spasms, but uh, you, it's not to be confused with you know, severe performance anxiety or, or you know, freezing or, or, or choking, that kind of thing. It's spasms, but they're generally task-specific. Like doc, uh, brass players were documented to have it in their embouchure, but only in one register. And then same thing, same thing with uh, you know violinists. They they were documented to have it, but only maybe playing a scale on you know one set of of the instrument, one one set of strings on the instrument. And then same same with guitar players. They they only had it in their right hand. Um, it's, it's, it's very task specific and, and that was probably made it the most interesting of the, of the disorders that I looked into. There's a guy named Scott. He's from scottsbasslessons.com. He has focal dystonia and he thought it was going to end his career, but he found through some strange treatment that if he wore a certain type of gloves, the pressure it put on his hand kind of tricked his brain into allowing him to play right again. But there's actually a whole episode of him talking about this on the Jason Heath podcast, which I should put in the, uh, the show notes here. You might, you might like to listen to this too, actually. Um, but he talks about what this sort of meant for him and what it was like. And, and he sort of described it like you'd go to play a scale, which you'd play a thousand times, but a different one would come out or just like a slur of notes would come out that you didn't intend to do. And, and you got kind of confused because your brain thought you did it, but nothing remotely correct came out. So it's a really frightening thing. I can't imagine that sort of loss of control neurologically. Yeah, I mean, it's it's debilitating. There's uh, the, the process you mentioned for recovery is, is actually one of the most common uh, process of recovery that I was able to to find in my research, but I, I should also say that um, focal dystonia only one general uh, one one part of your body is affected, and segmented dystonia is where two or more adjacent areas are affected, and then generalized dystonia is where most or all of your body is affected. So, uh, woodwind musicians in, in in the paper I wrote, 
the most common of those three was focal dystonia. So your paper says that 25% of musicians experience some kind of playing-related injury over the course of their career. Um, But data as far back as 1976 showed that actually 76% of musicians um, will have to take at least two weeks off at some point. So that's those numbers are kind of frightening. Um, what, what is the research on this as for orchestra musicians and doublers? Um, well, unfortunately, the answer isn't all that glamorous, as in, as with most uh, science experiments, more research is needed. But what I was able to find was one very interesting study done in, in Australia, which found that um, the, the general PRMD rate was about 55% for those who played one instrument. 38% for those who played two and 7% for those who played three or more. So that, that, that study does suggest uh, that doublers are, are hurt less. However, that, that was in sort of an unintended uh, data result of their, of their test. They weren't looking for injury rates in doublers. It just sort of happened to be some data that they, they, they were able to mine from. But that, that's only one study, and that, that's 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 a, unfortunately one study can't really support any kind of glorious claim. Much like the the thousands of other studies that I, I read through that showed uh, a range of about fifty five percent to to like you said seventy six percent of of musicians being hurt. It it is quite a large range. I, I wonder if some of it has to do with the fact that injuries just aren't reported by some people, and especially some time frames. That's absolutely part of it. I mean, there there were some studies that I, I looked through that did control for musicians being afraid to tell, you know, this this essentially unknown organization, whoever, whatever, if it was a university or maybe an individual uh, scientist doing this research, because some of these musicians were uh, held positions with symphonies or orchestras or ballet companies, and that they didn't want to release this information for fear of of losing their job. And then some of some of the the range is also attributed to some of these studies being uh, just across universities. Some of them were, you know, state specific. Some of them were just uh, surveys or, or, or experiments done on individual uh, symphonies or maybe like uh, the entire country symphonies. Like there's a Danish study where they surveyed the majority of the symphonies across the country in uh, in Holland. But um, that, that 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 attributes part of it. However. Um, I mean, the word, the least, uh, the least amount was 55%. I mean, that's, that's worse than a coin flip. So we're, we're still looking at something fairly serious here. So while the other studies weren't necessarily looking for a relationship with, uh, doubling or not doubling, you kind of were. And so what, what is this, um, even though it's one study, have you thought about trying to maybe further that research in your own, own way or, or what do you take away from that? Yeah, I mean, actually, in my paper, I was absolutely hoping to pull uh, a, a number of, of the New York community as, and as, as many other Dublin communities as I could. But the, the amount of paperwork I would have had to have gone through, unfortunately, was just not possible with the timeline that I had. I would have had to have you know, done individual sort of release uh, documents and agreements for each individual person. Uh, you know, it involves you know medical medical information and all sorts of things that you need to uh, you need to be mindful of. And uh, if I had another year, I probably could have done that. But uh, unfortunately, I, I wasn't able to. And that's definitely something I am hoping 
to maybe work on in the future. And I definitely hope other people work on it in the future because I think more and more of, especially the woodwind community, more and more of us are, are not going to be, you know, dedicated musicians to, to one instrument anymore. Just there's so much work out there and, and just the direction the work is going, you're going to have to play more and more instruments. Do you think that simply switching instruments leads or could potentially, you know, we're going to hypothesize here, but do you think it's what potentially leads to the reduction in injuries? Actually, yeah, that the, the study did hypothesize that, um, you know, if you played 10 hours in a day and you spent, you, you divided it amongst you know, three or four different instruments, those are different sort of repetitive actions you're performing and you're changing it up. And they absolutely hypothesized and believed, but you know, we, you know, we're not necessarily able to confirm that uh, this result is directly related to the fact that you just aren't doing the same task for as long as you're as the as the other people in, in the in the in the test. So a lot of musicians, especially in the past, I think that the, the previous generation especially, really followed a no pain, no gain philosophy and would really just sort of play through this kind of stuff. Is that changing? Is that mindset changing? Uh, I would say so, but then I still also see lots of people getting hurt. There's a, there's a lot of things that contribute to, to wanting to play hard and play more. I mean, maybe it's your job security, maybe it's your financial security, maybe it's there's an, there's an audition coming up, maybe you left uh, you left preparation a little bit too late uh, too late. but I mean there's a, there's a lot of factors that I think still contribute to this, maybe not socially as much as it used to be, but uh, I mean demanding performance schedules still uh, contribute to this. like more and more symphonies will record more and more things and play more and more concerts than they ever used to. Um, because they're you know, trying to justify their their sponsorships, they're trying to justify their funding. Um, you know, new and more and more repertoire is more and more difficult, and they have more and more extended techniques. So that's also contributing to your practice time. Uh, highest the standards have never really been higher in in, in the in the musician world. Um, and if you get a little in over your head, lack of control, or maybe over your instrument, or maybe over your schedule, can contribute to that inadequate prep stage placement, like maybe you're playing in a very dead room and you feel like you have to play to the room and play louder and force yourself more, performance anxiety, physical vulnerability, um, demanding or thoughtless conductors, and, and you know just generally playing too much, too intensely and too long with too much repetition and force. Um, you could, uh, your body size or your build can also contribute to it, your, your, your pre-existing conditioning, um, maybe you have muscle imbalances, like sort of like how a baseball pitcher's uh, throwing arm will probably be much stronger than their non-throwing arm. Uh, maybe you're already tired. Maybe you're sick. Maybe you have uh, a genetic condition like joint laxity, which is uh, you know a double jointedness. Your uh, misuse of the instrument, whether that be through poor technique or poor habits or poor posture. Uh, abrupt changes in your schedule and maybe all of a sudden you have an audition next week and you have to learn 30 excerpts or whatever it is or maybe you've changed the gauge on your strings or maybe you've changed the strength of your reed or maybe you've changed your instrument entirely and it's now heavier i mean a clarinet is almost two pounds and maybe you you you, you start playing a new clarinet which is heavier and you're still going to play the same way that you normally play well that's going to tax you uh, quicker than it used to one of the arguments for clarinet, especially, uh, some people say that extra E flat key adds adds in a little bit too much weight. Now I always used to think that was ridiculous, but if you think about it, that extra couple of ounces times a couple hundred hours of playing a year, that's a lot of extra weight on your thumb. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, and clarinetists will will definitely experience more thumb related injuries than than some other musicians. Like, I mean, oboists are about the same, saxophonists are about the same, same sort of issue. There's this thing called clarinet thumb, which is the layman's term for de Quervin's tendonitis. Um, that uh, clarinetists definitely experience, and it's definitely something all clarinetists need to be aware of. I remember when I was uh, buying uh, a new clarinet several years ago now, I remember trying different uh, lacquered clar- uh, keys on the on cl- different clarinets, and I remember noticing that certain lacquers were, were noticeably heavier than other clarinets and then also of course you know certain woods were much heavier and then I mean not 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 to pick on on Selmer but I remember the the Selmer recital being a beast of a clarinet that that thing is heavy very thick walls if I remember correctly yeah yeah and they they uh their their model that replaced that definitely thinned thinned that out and reduced the weight but was able to maintain the bore so they probably noticed their the the issue fairly quickly well, there's a lot of clarinets now that come with extra keys and different types of wood and, you know, you're right, extra heavy plating and all sorts of things. Um, some of this has been compensated for with neck straps, for example. But then, of course, the neck strap introduces a new area of pressure on the body. So, so uh, yeah, there's got to be some sort of solution. Maybe we need like clarinet floor pegs or something going forward. <laughs> well, they, they do exist. Um, they're, they're, I definitely found m- mostly... Uh, uh, non sort of major manufacturers like n- n- nobody like Van Doren is making these yet. But um, I definitely saw floor pegs um, for both standing and seated positions for for uh, all almost all the woodwinds that, that that are out there. Well, maybe it's something that needs to happen. If I mean, if it's going to extend your career, and you know, maybe it looks a little funny at first, but for instruments where there's no um, way around it, it's come into play. No pun intended. Your cello, bass, clarinet. Uh, obviously upright bass. Um, so maybe it is sort of a natural progression is to have the wood, sorry, the, the, the floor supporting the instrument, um, which makes more sense than your thumb. Well, we'll see. I'd be interested to know how that affects the, the tone of the instrument. Uh, but firstly, just inside your head, because I bet you that would change the vibrations in your head. But then also I w- I'd be interested to hear a side-side comparison uh, in, a, in a hall or something like that. It could have a deadening effect or something. Yeah, yeah. So let's go over real quick. We, we kind of talked about it's getting pretty pretty dire here. Everyone's at risk. <laughs> Most of yes, us are going to have run. everybody free. Yeah. <laughs> Most of us will have some sort of injury, and everybody's at risk. And the more you play, the worse it is. I mean, let's talk about some of the things that could happen. I mean, tendon. There's we talked about focal dystonia, but there's also a few others. Would you go over the uh, the potential problems that could happen? Injuries. Sure. Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, I mean, unfortunately, there's there's lots out there, but uh, out of the five I covered, uh, carpal tunnel is the, is the most common, and uh, carpal tunnel just I guess very quickly is a, is a syndrome uh, where you you have a pinched nerve in your in your uh, in your wrist. It's the median nerve, and it's it's characterized by having you know numbness or pain or tingling either in your hand or your arm or both. Um, and in the 1997 publication by the International Skeletal Society, they found that carpal tunnel accounted for 48% of all workplace illnesses, which is up from 18%, you know, uh, just shy two decades earlier. Uh, it was known as the white collar epidemic of the 90s because that was sort of 
when keyboards and, and mice and all sorts of this uh, new technological equipment was was being widely used and unfortunately widely used Im improperly. Um, but very basically, sort of how, how carpal tunnel happens, especially in, in musicians, is just uh, repetition and overexertion, whether it's due to excessive uh, flexion or extension. And just to, I guess, to try and explain that, uh, if you were to hold your hand palm down, um, flexion is when you point your fingers to the ground, and extension is when you point your fingers to the ceiling, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. But... Um, if so if you do that a lot, you'll you'll probably you know wear yourself out and uh, possibly develop carpal tunnel. Um, it's mostly seen in right hands in woodwind musicians, mostly because uh, in in woodwinds, yes, as people, if people aren't aware, the right hand is the hand that supports the weight of the instrument. In saxophone, it's you know where the thumb rest, clarinet as well, oboe and English horn as well, flute also, uh, and then bassoon. Bassoon, uh, not as much because you have either the the seat strap or or, or the harness, but um, bassoonist as well. Um, cubital tunnel is uh, is sort of a, a similar similar uh, disorder, but it it's, it involves the ulnar nerve, which is could be more commonly known as the nerve that is responsible for whenever you hit your funny bone and you feel that tingling sensation. Um, this one, I was actually able to find that uh, it's it's more common in flutists than compared to clarinetists or bassoonists or saxophonists, but it's not it's not a crazy uh, increase in percentage. But um, I guess because the flute, uh, you have the sort of, I hesitate to say this, but wings up kind of posture. Um, your elbow is a little bit more involved in the flute than than the other woodwinds. Uh, tendonitis, um, also known as tennis elbow or golfer's elbow, um, is, is, the, is the other common one, and that 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 uh, quite often happens in the forearms or or again in the in the in the hands or the arms of wooden musicians. So that's the types of injuries. But one of the interesting things that I found with your paper as well was that women are actually more likely to be afflicted by these injuries than men. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. And, and I, I, sh I should say that maybe it's suggested that women are affected more than men. So, some studies um, were able to control for gender, the gender difference better than others. Some of it was just sort of like unintended result with their, with their data. But um, it, it is suggested that, that women are more affected than men. Now, some of it is, is a, a, a social reason, like maybe may, perhaps uh, women are more uh, ready to disclose this, this information. Um, part of it is, uh, well, not, not as much cause they were able to control this for as well, but part of it is numbers cause maybe some orchestras had more women than men or, or more or men than women, but they were, studies were able to mostly clearly, uh, show that it wasn't due to women having smaller frames or smaller hands or smaller bodies, which I thought was really, really interesting and really cool. That is interesting because I was just going to ask, do you think it has to do with reduced muscle mass and stature, for example? I mean, I think that's definitely a factor. I don't think, uh, I mean, at least the studies that I, I looked through suggest that it is not like, you know, over and above the main factor. Um, well, guys, maybe women are just practicing a whole lot more. <laughs> yeah, maybe may you got to keep up. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. So it, they found, so basically what you're saying is, it was not due to, or they suppose it was not due to stature or muscle mass, and it was not due to being reported more or less. So I guess they really don't know why at this point. 
No, they, uh, this was, again, a very unglamorous uh, sort of conclusion that and, and that all of the papers that I, I read, they, they, they say more research is needed and they, they need to design a, a, some kind of study to specifically control for all the kinds of things that we were just talking about. Wow, that's very interesting. Very interesting. So what are some things that we can like we're heading down a really dark path here, as I said a moment ago, but what are some things that we can do to prevent and uh, well, yeah, let's start with prevention of these sort of um, symptoms, because obviously prevention is the best cure. Well, fortunately, the um, the sort of preventative methods and then also the things that you'll do if uh you know, heaven forbid you, you, you do injure yourself. Are, are, there's a lot of uh, overlap. Uh, the first one that is most commonly prescribed is just is rest and more specifically rest from the causative activity. So if do, it's the sort of like that old joke, like, doctor, it hurts when I do this. Well, don't do this. <laughs> So re- resting fr- from uh, from that from whatever the cause is, is is the first and foremost the thing that you should be doing. And if you still need to practice, if you still need to play, well then, perhaps the way you've learned to play is incorrect. Perhaps uh, what you're doing or how you're doing it um, is leading to that injury, and maybe you need to relearn how to do whatever it is that you're doing. Could smaller rests be as beneficial as bigger rests? Like I imagine someone preparing for a last minute concert who needs to practice five hours today, they still need to put in that time. But maybe if they break it up into, you know, 10 half hour sections, they'd be better off than just, you know, banging it out. Yeah, a lot, a lot of the a lot of the scientists, a lot of the musicians that I that I read, uh, their, their papers all suggest that uh, everyone should develop some kind, some kind of routine that incorporates breaks or incorporates, you know, rest periods. And, and it varies. They say it varies person to person how long, you know, that should be, whether it's five minutes every hour or 15 minutes every hour or what have you. Uh, but they all they all heavily advocate uh, incorporating breaks. And some of them will say things like, well, if you still, if you have a lot of work to do, so maybe you're a student and you have a jury to work for, uh, to prepare for, but you also have exams, maybe incorporate your break in with uh, a very brief, you know, study period, like, you know, play half an hour of your scales or half an hour of your piece, and then maybe do five minutes of, of maybe studying one fact about, you know, whatever exam you're preparing for. And that way, maybe over the grand scheme of things, you're still putting in a solid you know, hour or five hours of work, but you're still having that break from playing. What about using that break to do something like, uh, you know, an area massage or stretching or anything like that? Uh, absolutely. Um, icing is also something that uh, a lot of people say to incorporate in your breaks or, or heat, depending on what uh, what uh, what ails you. But um, stretching, uh, massage, wa- uh, like, you know, cold water or hot water or, or even just a, a, an ice pack or, or a heating pad, all those kinds of things are, are definitely uh, should be should be incorporated into, again, you know, person to person, depending on what it is they feel that they're needing. Um, but also you can you can find occupational therapy to be very helpful as well. So maybe something where somebody helps you, whether that be, <clears throat> you know, chiropractic or, or physical therapy or maybe be even more uh, lesser known things like the Alexander technique or the Feldenkrais method um, or, or yoga, Pilates, you know, all sorts of things that you can do. Uh, some on your own, but some some you'll need uh, some you'll need a little bit of help. Do you think it's worth investing in things like occupational therapy and physical therapy, um, physiotherapy, a little bit of massage, all these kind of things 
before you have the injury instead of after? Because usually people look into this type of treatment after the fact. I mean, for me personally, I, I, I regularly see a chiropractor or a phys- uh, physical therapist. Um, I'm very fortunate that uh, with my show I'm with right now, uh, once a week we have a, a physical therapy, uh, f- f- sorry, physical therapist come in and is available to the team. And I make sure that uh, I am staying on top of that and and also staying on top of my stretches and all sorts of, of, of I, have, I sort of have this short regimen that I, I do my best to adhere to. Uh, so that I can play eight shows a week. So you talk a lot about posture, and this is nothing a preventative element, I think, is posture and technique. What are some things that clarinetists can do to improve their posture and technique to reduce their risk of getting these sorts of injuries? Well, if you're if you're playing sitting down, uh, it's very important to create consistency with your, your seated postures. Now, whether that's just using the same kind of seat all the time, like I know winger chairs are widely used in universities, um, or whether it's, you know, you travel a seat wedge or maybe a, a back wedge to help promote uh, consistency in your posture. Uh, it, I, I was always explained, it was explained to me, like imagine you're like a, a marionette almost, and there's a string at the top of your head and it's it's sort of you know a little bit taut and and it's trying to make your 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 spine basically long and liquid those, those are the those are the key words because um, if you know if you're hunched over your spine's not long and liquid anymore it's just sort of you know bent <laughs> and and that's that's not good for your air that's not good for your 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 tone and that's that's not good for your body so those are some of the ways that we can adjust our our personal posture but is there any way we can help improve or reduce our risk of injury by altering the instrument, for example, the thumb rest or the keys? Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, in flutes, it's actually uh, almost standard now, the offset G key. Um, you can also get all sorts of different thumb rests. You can get floor pegs. You can wear neck straps like we previously mentioned. Uh, my personal uh, opinion for clarinet specifically is 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 adjusting the, the thumb rest because you know you can make that higher you can make it lower you can add you know, a rubber cushion or you can add some kind of uh, third party device to help uh, distribute the weight like I know there's there are thumb rests that uh, have wide pads on them or some of them even have you know multiple points of contact further up your arm to help distribute the, that weight of the clarinet so that you, you're not playing with so much uh, tension or stress. There's one called the Kuiman thumb rest, which I've used successfully for, for quite a few years now. Um, it sort of allows you to brace the weight between your thumb instead of sort of pinning it on there, which is really good. But I have to say that although I love it, I, I don't think I would get it installed on my new set simply because I have to drill into the wood and uh, they're fairly permanent. So it's it's too bad because in a way I'll be limiting my own ability to play potentially in the future if I'm not careful. But um, perhaps that's a business opportunity for for one of these manufacturers out there to to sell their clarinets with these things previously installed. Yeah, I mean they're they're really they're, they're interesting. The, the only disadvantage along with that is you also have to slide them off when you risk losing them. <laughs> Here oh, there. That's have right, you, that's have right. you tried those, the Kuimans? I, I have. Uh, I personally uh, was not able to get comfortable with it. I, I am a much more uh, I have a much more simple solution. I just use like a thin piece of rubber uh, on my thumb rest. But um, I, I did try them, and they are very comfortable. But unfortunately, it just wasn't for me. I like how they open up the hand a bit too, which is which is great for students. But yeah, there's all kinds of different devices here. You've you've actually featured many of them in the the article you wrote with pictures, which is just amazing. And it seems that flute 
um, for some reason, might be the most interesting ones. They actually have physical things that attach to the body and, and sort of make a thumb rest where there isn't one. Yeah, yeah. There are these little these little clips um, that sort of go on the underside of, of, of the body that uh, can either increase the thumb surface area or, or, or at the very least change the angle so that, you know, maybe uh, maybe it fits a better fit for your hand. Let's talk about straps, too, actually. What are some features of straps that one should look for to make sure that they um, they work for them and how could they adjust them properly? Well, um, if you're playing if you're playing a larger instrument like a bassoon or a baritone saxophone, you'll probably want to go with a harness just because they're, they're much larger instruments, they're much heavier, and, and a harness will have more points of contact. However, if, if you're more comfortable with a strap, then, then obviously just like a single neck strap is what you should do. But I was always taught that uh, the instrument should come to you and you shouldn't go to the instrument, so that the neck strap should be adjusted or the harness so that um, you can bring the instrument comfortably to you and you don't have to you know, move your neck or, or bend your head in any sort of uncomfortable way to, to access uh, the reed or, or, or the double reed in the case of bassoon. Um, it should also be comfortable enough so that it's not pinching your neck or causing any sort of uh, uh, blood flow uh, loss. I know there are a number of neck straps out there that feature uh, almost this wingtip design where there's this gap in the middle of this neck strap at the back to allow for uh, what uh, better circulation of, of, I guess, the, the fluid in your spine, but also the blood flow. I've always wanted to be careful with neck straps because I, I sort of agree with Michael Lowenstern, um, who said something like, there's some pretty important stuff that goes through your neck. So <laughs> you want to make sure that you're not, you know, pinching nerves or cutting off circulation or all sorts of things. Yeah. I mean, and for me personally, I do not enjoy using a neck strap on clarinet. There's just too many um, angles at which uh, I, I'm not comfortable when I wear a neck strap. So, but it, that, that being said, I mean, if it works for you, you should use it and you should continue to use it and enjoy it so that you can put more, uh, put more hours into your instrument. I mean, Dorothy Tubman, who is, who is a huge proponent of, of playing with good technique and good posture, said... Uh, your instrument loves to be touched, so you should you should love to you should love to touch it. <laughs> so you talk about a minute ago. You were talking about the chair, and uh, I, that sort of had, had a moment to sink in. And I, I realized that a lot of people spend all kinds of money on on reeds and on ligatures and all sorts of things for their instrument. But I think that getting a proper practice chair is is fairly low on the priority list for a lot of people. So. What are some other things you think that people should invest in for their studio that will improve elements of their their uh, injury prevention? Uh, I mean, comfortable chairs are great. Uh, when, I mean, I, I've used a lot of winger chairs over the courses over the course of, of my tours, and uh, I I like them a lot. Um, they're they're always the same. I know when I see one, I know what it's going to be like. Um, but that being said, there are there are a number of uh, fancier chairs out there that can you can adjust uh, the the height of, of the legs. There's even ones out there where you can adjust the front ones differently than the back ones. I know I know cellists sometimes prefer this, um, but I I think the the right answer is just is just to create a situation where you have consistency because that way um, it's just one less variable you have to worry about. And if maybe perhaps if you're if you have a concert coming up and you know the kind of chair they're using, 
perhaps you should get a uh, practice with a chair like that. So just so that you know what it's going to be like when you get there and try and recreate that performance situation to the best of your ability. Uh, but if you, if, if there is an uncomfortable chair that you are forced to use, if there's no other option, uh, there's two or three very easy things that you can just travel with that will help uh, mitigate maybe some of the, the drawbacks of that chair. You can you can take a towel around with you because if there's a sharp edge, you can just wrap the towel around that sharp edge. Or, or maybe you'd need a little bit more height, uh, like under one uh, under 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 your butt or something like that. Or you can just have a seat wedge to do the same thing. Or you can have a, like I said earlier, a backrest. So any anything that will promote or create c- consistency, I think, is the right thing to do. And it's funny because I, I was just thinking too. Your your study didn't go to things like eye injuries and hearing injuries and all those kinds of things. But I feel too that carrying around something like a stand light could just be so helpful. So you're not squinting in the dark and and things like that in situations, even where it's not supposed to be dark, but you know, maybe you're not in a position with great lighting above you. It happens all the time, you know, um, things like earplugs or, uh, even just wearing comfortable shoes. Like I imagine there's so many things that we don't think about that we should be thinking about. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Shoes are a huge deal for me. I remember, um, I used to play, uh, with, with, with a group where you had to stand a lot. So, I mean, I bought, I bought really good shoes just because I knew I was going to be putting a lot of hours into them. I also have a, a set of custom formed earplugs for the same reason. I mean, whenever I play piccolo, you absolutely want to put the, the earplug in your right ear whenever you play piccolo. Or, or maybe if you're playing beside somebody who's particularly loud. Um, I know I know Walt Weisskopf, who's a, a well-known jazz tenor player, uh, taught himself how to play with earplugs in all the time and his his I, I don't feel like his musical ability suffered at all for it I know a lot of people feel like oh it changes the sound inside my head or it changes how I sound and I mean it does to an extent change the way you sound in inside your own skull but that being said I, I think there there is a lot of uh, importance in, in protecting and, and uh, prolonging your hearing because you, once you lose it you don't get it back so yeah, all these things to be taken seriously, <laughs> very seriously. So how can we finish up here and put a positive spin on this? What, what do you think maybe are three steps that everyone can take away and, and try and reduce their their uh, risk of injury and have a better time practicing and not feel scared? <laughs> I, I, I was able to come up with a, a five-step process uh, based on all the papers, papers and books I read. I was able to sort of combine... Uh, a lot of their information. Unfortunately, there, there was a decent amount of overlap. So the five steps are pretty easy uh, and uh, starts with just warming up and, and warming up properly uh, in such a way that allows you to be the most successful musically and physically. Uh, warm muscles are, are more cooperative and efficient and resilient when they're eased into a task rather than plunged right into them. So I, I would recommend you know considering stretch or, or, or exercise as part, uh, as part of your warm-up routine. Um, the second one is taking breaks. And, and like we had discussed earlier, whether it's five minutes for every hour or, or whatever other ratio works for you, uh, it's, it's important to find moments to, to take a break and rest. And this is no different whether you're in a practice room, recital hall, a show, or, or even making reads. Like I was actually able to find that um, making reads, uh, you, you can get hurt making reads. So all you, all you oboists and bassoonists, watch out. Well, not to mention the knife. The, the knife itself can cut you. I mean, we didn't even talk about, about physical injuries like I experienced. I mean, we're talking about playing-related injuries, but I mean, you can injure yourself many other ways. Don't kid yourself. I mean, I... I fell down the stairs with a glass in my hand when it was out for months and may never be the same, <laughs> you know? So it's crazy. 
Third one is paying attention to your posture. And like we just said before, whether you're with a teacher or a friend or in front of a mirror, um, or if, uh, if you don't have a mirror or, or, or any friends, uh, my condolences, <laughs> but, um, uh, you can just use, um, your phone, just, uh, turn on the, the front camera of your phone. Um, so that, that, that really works too. Um, the fourth one is paying attention to your pain and, and, and knowing the difference, you know, but, uh, knowing the difference between pain and fatigue because they are very different. Um, if something hurts, you should, you should address it. You should you know, consult a physician or a medical professional. And, and the last one is, is educate yourself. Um, know how to play your instrument and, and, and don't just, you know, slough that off. It's like, oh, I know how to play my instrument. Well, maybe you don't. Maybe there is one thing that you, you could do better. And I bet you, I bet you if you really looked at uh, how you play your instrument or instruments, if you're a doubler, you, you could find uh, things you could improve, either little, little places here and there or, or maybe even big places. Um, there's lots of resources available to you. Um, there's lots of books out there. There's lots of studies. I mean, all, I was able to access all of this information with just my university login credentials. And I had, you know, thousands upon thousands of, of things that I could read and, uh, more, more than, you know, I probably could do in a lifetime, let alone for just a paper. But, um, there's a, a teacher of the Alexander Technique, Pedro de Alcantara, says, let's correct our tendency to obtain results at any cost and narrow that gap by learning to engage our muscles only to the degree necessary to do the work. I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just um, work uh, physically. Only, only work as hard as, as you need to. Don't, don't overexert yourself because that, that could cause, cause you some trouble. Well, Garrett, I really want to thank you for coming on to talk about this again. I think we had a wonderful conversation about, about Broadway touring and sort of some of the mental considerations of, of repetitive playing and music. But, and this was a great sort of uh, second chat about the physical things that also need to be taken into account. And I just want to mention again, I will have mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, but uh, neither Garrett or myself are doctors. So if you are experiencing symptoms, please go see your doctor. And uh, I don't think that anything we said should be constituted as medical advice. Um, Just want to get that out there as a disclaimer. Although I do think we talked about, of course, many valuable things. Um, Also, be sure to head back and listen to episode 86. That was the conversation with Garrett from before. And uh, Garrett, I think we're going to skip the lightning round today because we just did it recently. How do you feel about that? (laughs) Uh, That's perfectly all right. Okay. All right. Perfect. Is there something else you'd like to add, though, before we close? Uh, No. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for coming back on the show again. And I hope to keep in touch. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Clarinet Podcast. Show notes for this and all other episodes can be found at clarinet.com. While you're there, don't forget to join our email newsletter for free updates, exclusive offers, and a chance to win giveaways. Guests' requests, listener feedback, and comments can be sent to feedback at clarinet.com. Special thank you to our season sponsor, Dario Woodwinds. Don't forget to check out their new show, Don't Blow It, on Instagram, and also try a box of their new reserve clarinet reads next time you're at the music store. Clarinet is made possible by listeners just like you. You can support the ongoing production of this independently produced program by donating to our Patreon at clarinet.com support. Supporters get early access to extended ad-free regular podcasts and exclusive access to patron-only episodes and live events. This program was produced and hosted by me, Sean Perrin, in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Music performed by Michael Lowenstern. Debate episodes co-hosted by Andrew Morrow. Audio editing by Brian Chappelle's and copy editing by Megan Taylor. That's all for now. Be sure to tune in next time for more of what's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry on the Clarinet Podcast.